Hi, welcome to Church for Skeptics. We want to talk about Christmas, and if I'm going to entitle this program tonight, it's going to be called, Is Christmas a Myth? The reason I use that title is that in the Tuscaloosa News, uh, several weeks ago, I think actually, they, they reported on a billboard that was shown, I think from New Jersey, and the billboard had a picture of the wise men. It was really Christmassy looking. But then the message on the billboard said, you know it's a myth. Of course, the idea being that the whole Christmas story is a myth borrowed from pagan religions. And there's been a lot of criticism about the, the Christmas story. So, so tonight what we want to accomplish, hopefully, is to talk about these historical objections to show that, it, that there's every historical evidence that it was true. And then to finish, we want to talk about the theological implications of the virgin birth of Christ. And I'm sure from this perspective of the billboard, you know, my first reaction to that was, what's a myth? If they're saying, you know, it's a myth, are they saying that the wise men, which were pictured, is a myth? Are they saying that the birth of Jesus is a myth? I mean, take the idea that, that it's basically an historical fact, just as much as Napoleon or, or World War II. Uh, I can't find any credible, really credible historian that, that doubts the life of Jesus Christ and his death by crucifixion under the under Pontius Pilate. So if Jesus is not a mythical or legendary figure, which historians say, no, he was the real deal as far as a, a living person is concerned, then we know he was born. So the birth of Christ, of course, can't be a myth in that basis or on that basis. But um, I want to deal with the objections and then uh, talk about the theological implications of the virgin birth, why I believe it was an absolute necessity to put the world at right. So stay with us as we watch Church for Skeptics. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. So let's read the Christmas story, at least in part, out of Luke chapter 2. And by the way, I'm reading this from my nook, which I got for my birthday, uh, and I really like. So this is the traditional King James Version, for those of you who might know the difference. Luke chapter 2, <clears throat> And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Serenius, now if you have another version it's going to say Quirinius, was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Well, right off the bat, Luke is supposedly in historical trouble. There are three objections that uh, skeptics want to uh, input to this Christmas story to say oh, it's a myth. Luke got his history all wrong. Basically, the first three are that there is no record of a worldwide tax being decreed by Augustus Caesar at the time of the birth of Jesus. So is Luke in trouble? Is he in historical trouble? Is the Bible inaccurate? And therefore the whole thing's untrustworthy? Well, no, not really. Here's what we know. 
first thing we know from Roman records is that a, a, a census was taken of their empire every 14 years for the very purpose of taxation and sometimes for the purpose of conscription into the Roman army, but most of the time for taxation. We do have a Roman record of a tax being issued in 7 AD. And so, number one, if you just go 14 years in reverse, there should have been, and by the way, we have a record of this, also a tax in 7 BC. Now the question then is, if we have the record of those two taxes, do we need a decree by Augustus Caesar in, we'll call it 1 AD, the year of Jesus' birth, um, do we need a record that says the tax was issued then? It says in the days, in those days, a tax was issued. How long would it take? Let's, let's assume that Caesar makes this decree, which we know he did um, from other records, in 7 BC. How long would it take for that census, it's a census for the purpose of taxation, how long would it take for that census to catch up to Palestine, which is kind of an obscure colony, if you will, of the Roman Empire? Could it have taken at least seven years? Well, the answer to that is, of course. Uh, we have a record of, a, of, a, of the same, a similar census being taken in the, in the conquered territory of Gaul, uh, modern-day France, of course. Uh, that took 40 years for the whole census to be taken. So it's not a stretch at all to assume that the tax that Luke refers to, the census ordered by Augustus that he refers to, was actually issued in 7 BC, and it took that long for it to catch up to Palestine. Now the second objection is that Serenius or Quirinius, uh, Serenius is easier to say, easier to say, so I'll use that name, uh, was not the governor, here again we're going to extra biblical evidence, and that's, that's important for these historians, is there any evidence outside of the Bible that confirms the evidence that the Bible gives us in the statements that Luke makes here? Is Luke a good historian or is he just whistling Dixie, so to speak? Well, here's what we know. <clears throat> we know, first of all, that the governor that preceded uh, the governor during the time of Christ and of his birth was a failure. He was a terrible uh, military general and governors at that point were expected to be basically both. So we know that he was replaced in 4 BC. We don't know who specifically replaced him. The records show that Quirinius or Serenius was, did become the governor of Syria in 7 AD, again, again the time of that second taxation that we have record of. But here's what we have, and this was discovered a long time ago, just kind of ignored by the skeptics, and, and they seem to take the attitude that the absence of evidence means that there's evidence of absence. In other words, if you don't have evidence, it, it's impossible. Well, that's not really the case. We do have an inscription that praises and honors the governor uh, of Syria who assumed his office in 4 BC. Now that would have been four years before the tax caught up to Palestine and only three years after the census was ordered by uh, Caesar. Well, unfortunately, I suppose, the name is left off of what we have, the evidence we have of this, this inscription of the, of the Roman governor of Syria, but everything that describes him fits exactly the exploits and the military successes of the governor Quirinius, who was a very favored Roman general. He was a very good military leader. 
So is it a stretch then to assume that this guy who's described as becoming governor of Syria in 4 BC is actually Quirinius, which means then that he was governor twice. We also know that Quirinius, now get this, I think this is the most important evidence. We also know from Roman records that Quirinius, as an honor to his military exploits, was put in charge of the 7 BC census that was ordered by Caesar. So I think what this shows is exactly that Luke is a great historian. I mean, after all, uh, I'll give you a great example here, I think. William Ramsey was, is one of the most famous archaeologists in the history of archaeology. And he was, he was early, 1900s, early 1900s. He set out to disprove Luke's history. That's, that's what he wanted to do. Now, he's an archaeologist. So he digs around for several years to try to prove that Luke is an inaccurate historian. At the end of that, it was literally several, several years, I want to say 12 years, he became a follower of Jesus Christ, William Ramsey did, because he could find not one single error in the geography, the political figures that Luke described. Luke got 34 countries, uh, 52 cities, nine islands, and dozens and dozens of historically verifiable personages, he got them exactly right. So because William Ramsey couldn't find a single mistake in Luke's history, he started taking seriously the unverifiable things like the virgin birth uh, of Jesus that Luke reports. In the end, he became a follower of Christ. So, so far we've gotten two criticisms of the, of the Christmas story. One, that the tax of Augustus. Number two, that Quirinius wasn't the governor. We've got some good historical reasons to believe that Luke got it just right, just like he did in every other thing. So these, these objections kind of start being dropped off one by one. Let me read you again a couple of the verses here that get into the third objection that uh, some critics have about the Christmas story and its supposed mythology. It says in verse 3, I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? We've read t two verses in Luke chapter 2, and already Luke's just criticized for his history. But I think we've shown some really good historical evidence that he's not inaccurate at all. When we get into verse 3, it says, And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. One of the interesting things to me is that for many years, people deny that Bethlehem was even a town because there's no other, this is very interesting to me, there's no other extra biblical mention that we know of, of the town of Bethlehem other than the Bible. I mean, we're talking about a very small town here, maybe three or 400 people uh, maximum. Finally, they found a reference to the city of Bethlehem in, in uh, Jewish records, but not until after 70 A.D. After 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed by the Romans in that year, the Jewish temple in, in Jerusalem, and the priests of the temple were reassigned to various cities around Judea. And so it it's references Bethlehem in that, in that writing that one of those priests was actually sent to the town of Bethlehem, the little village of Bethlehem. So we know Bethlehem's the real deal. We know that uh, um, it was a very small place. The question is, was it necessary for Joseph to go to his hometown, his place of origin, in order to register for this tax? Well, 
what we know is number one that Bethlehem is is a is a real place or was a real place at that time. Of course, we know it now. But also, we all we have another reference to a tax that was was ordered. It's about a hundred years later, but in that tax, everyone was ordered to go to their town of origin. Now that may not have come, that order to go back to the place of your birth or the place where you own land or the fa place where your family uh, lived, that may not have been a Roman order. But keep in mind that you've got two other stages here. You've got number one, Quirinius, who is the governor of Syria, who's in charge of this whole thing, plus King Herod, who's having to cooperate with all these folks. So. There's every reason to believe that Joseph did have to go back to Bethlehem. Uh, we don't know exactly where the order came from, but considering everything else that Luke gets right, he's obviously not putting in these details to discredit his reporting, his accounting of the birth of Jesus. He's putting, in there, putting them in there because they were historically verifiable. And that's what we've encountered every time. And he's backing what he says up with all these facts that can be verified. And so it seems obvious to me that this is a great place to at the very least give him the benefit of the doubt. That brings us to another interesting point here. Um, most people have the idea that here's what happened. Christians even have this idea that here's what happened. And you'll see this reflected in virtually every manger scene. They have the idea that Joseph and Mary, who probably wouldn't have had to go with Joseph, but remember she's pregnant theoretically out of wedlock, so she may have been disgraced in her own family, and, and of course the penalty for that would have been death. And Joseph could have taken that option, but uh, he didn't. He chose to marry her anyway because the scriptures tell us that he was informed by an angel that she had conceived by the Holy Spirit and that her son would be the promised Messiah. So she went with him. So it's not a long journey, but it's a very arduous journey. And while she was there, the Bible says that the days were accomplished that she should deliver the Christ child. Well, most people have the idea that Joseph and Mary get to Bethlehem. She is ready to give birth at that point. <laughs> and because the city's so crowded with people coming in to register for the tax, they couldn't find a room at the hotel, the inn. And so she had to go to a stable and was surrounded by animals. And that's what most of the manger scenes reflect. Well, there's no reason biblically to think that, and there's certainly no reason culturally and historically to think that. Think of, think of this. Number one, the city of David is Bethlehem. Uh, Joseph is of the royal line. He can trace his uh, genealogy back to King David. There's no way that he would have been turned away from any home. He's got relatives there. Plus, the Bible doesn't say she gave birth that night that they arrived. He would have had plenty of time to make arrangements. So how do we explain there's no room in the inn and, and she gives birth and lays him in a manger? Uh, I want to give credit here to a guy named Kenneth Bailey who was a missionary, as much as you can be a missionary, and a scholar in the Middle East for 40 years. He says that most homes had only two rooms in them, three if you count the animals' room. And we're not dealing with wealthy families here who had herds of cattle. We're dealing with poor families who had a home in Bethlehem. They maybe had one cow, uh, you know, a, a sheep or two, um, but not, not a herd of animals. They kept those animals inside their home. 
And most houses were built, and they still are, by the way, in the Middle East, where you have two rooms in the home, one room in which the family lived, slept, ate, um, and at the one end of those rooms, there was a, uh, a hewn-out place in the foundation so that they could bring their animals through the door of the house at night and feed them at a lower level through these mangers, which were hewn-out places in the foundation of the house. Then they had at the other end of the house a guest room, which if you look at the, the Hebrew wording and all the others, I mean, if you want to go to Aramaic, uh, Syriac, Coptic, all the others, uh, of that culture, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about a room in the house. And of course, it would have been normal with a lot of people coming into Bethlehem, a town that's very small to begin with, a lot of relatives came. So the, the guest room was full. There was no room for them in the inn, which means guest room. So they stayed with a family. They were, they were living with some of his relatives there. So when it came time, while they were there for Mary to deliver, she delivered the child surrounded by family, Joseph's family at any rate. And they're, of course, both, both of them, as you see in the genealogies, were members of the tribe of Judah and descendants of David. So when she gave birth, she laid the Christ child in this uh, trough manger in the room and with the family, which they normally would have used to put f food in for the animals who could have eaten it then, have at, had, would have had access to that from a lower level. So we've got a little bit of misconceptions from uh, the Christmas story, and it's also very interesting, where did those misconceptions come from? They actually came from a novel. The first Christian novel that we know anything about was written in the third century. And that's the impression that this novel gave. And so most people have no awareness that that novel was even written, but that's where we get a lot of our ideas about Christmas from rather than the scripture and the culture surrounding it. I thought that was an interesting point. I hope you do too. I'd like to cover one more historical problem or what some folks see as a contradiction in scripture and then use that as a lead-in to talk about the real message of Christmas, what Christmas is really all about, the birth of Christ. We call it Christmas now. And that the, the objection is raised over the, two, the differences in the genealogy that Matthew gives about Jesus and the genealogy that Luke gives about Jesus. And they're, they're totally different, really. Um, we won't take time, of course, to read them all, but the fact that they're very different uh, freaks out some skeptics as well, uh, and also the fact that they're they're backwards in a sense. In Matthew, give the genealogy of Christ, and and I guess parenthetically we should say why is that important? It's important because Jesus is the Messiah, first and foremost, the Messiah of Israel, the promised anointed one that would be king, prophet, and priest of Israel. That expands. To become the savior of the world, of course, which if you read the Old Testament, that you can see that in the Old Testament. Uh, but Matthew's genealogy starts with Abraham, where Israel starts, and it gives the lineage, actually, of Joseph. Now, Joseph, of course, is not the actual father of Jesus, if the virgin birth story is true, which I'm 100% convinced that it is, uh, but he is the legal father. So to be the, the promised Messiah of Israel, Jesus has to be of the house of David, the tribe of Judah, and uh, in line 
so to speak, to be uh, a possible king. Joseph gives the lineage from Abraham down through Joseph, and then he, Luke even says Joseph was the supposed father of Jesus. Well, there's a reason that Joseph, theologically, uh, there's a reason that Joseph could not be the actual father of Jesus. Back in the Old Testament, there was a curse uh, given to Jeconiah, who was the king of Israel uh, right before the time of exile, who kind of caved in to the political pressures of his day and failed as a king. And God said nobody from the, from the actual lineage, the loins of Jeconiah, will ever sit on the throne of, of Israel again. So had Jesus been the actual biological child of Joseph, he could not have been the Messiah. Keep this in mind, too. The Jews were not expecting a virgin-born child to be their Messiah. There's absolutely no reason for the Gospel writers to make up this virgin birth story. Now, we believe, and I believe, that Isaiah 7.14 is a prophecy about the Messiah, where it says that a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. But to the Jew Jewish mind, that prophecy was fulfilled in the days of Isaiah. Uh, the king had a son. Then that promised son was, the, was sort of a promise from God that everything was going to be okay with Israel against their enemies. So there was no contemporary theological reason to make this up. As a matter of fact, it, it, it takes the New Testament for us to realize that as a representative of the, of the Jewish nation, Jesus fulfills that prophecy in a greater way. So there's no reason to make up the story is what I'm saying. So Matthew gives the genealogy of Jesus through, from Abraham down through Joseph, who is the legal father. And, and because of that, of course, Jesus is qualified to be the Messiah of Israel. Now Luke, himself not Jewish, a uh, Gentile physician, it's amazing, he starts backwards. He starts with Jesus and works all the way back to the very first man, Adam. Why is that? It also through uh, just a different son of David. He's still in the lineage of Judah, uh, the tribe of, of Judah rather, and the lineage of David, so he still qualifies as the Messiah, but it gives Mary's, the mother, the actual biological mother of Jesus, it gives her lineage. So now we're talking about the biological qualifications for Jesus to be the Messiah, and the fact that he goes all the way back to Adam uh, means something very significant. Jesus is the second Adam in Scripture. In other words, he represents not only Israel, but he represents the entire human race as the perfect, sinless human being. And now we come to the necessity of the virgin birth. Again, that's not verifiable history. I grant you that. Though I take that by faith. The scriptures get everything else right that can be historically verified. But it makes sense to me that Jesus came to put the world right, to make things right. And let's park that a minute, and let me, let me bring up another question here. If you, as you talk to people, and as I talk to people, I often ask them, especially if they're non-believers or naturalists in the sense that they think that everything's physical, that we're all here just as a product of evolution, I often ask them this question. What's wrong, if anything, with the world? Do you think that anything is wrong with the world? I've never had, this is true, I've never had anybody say, no, nothing's wrong. 
usually when you ask that question, you, you better step back because you're going to get a long list of things that are actually wrong with the world. And I certainly agree. Uh, but wait a minute. If the world is, has no purpose and no plan and it's just a physical product of a, a blind, mindless force, then how do we account for our overwhelming sensation that it has gone wrong? There was no plan to begin with on that view. There was no goal. There was no target. So how do we account for this overwhelming idea that we have that the world is wrong, that it needs to be put right? Well, Christianity has no problem with that question because they view, we view, I view, history, all of history is linear. In other words, it has a point. It has a purpose. When God created the world and the human race, He created us for a purpose, and there, there's, a, there's a point for our creation, a reason for us being here. Th that He gave us free will as, so that we could love Him and love each other also gives us the potential for going wrong, for making bad choices, and the Scriptures tell us that's exactly what happened. And there are consequences for that evil. Most everyone, even atheists, agree that evil does exist, Although there are a few that would say the world doesn't have a reason to be here, there's no purpose or direction, so there's really no such thing as good and evil. But we intuitively know that's not true. We know there's much evil in the world, overwhelming evil in some cases. What can possibly save the world? What can possibly make the world right? Well, there has to be justice to make the world right, and most of us agree with that. We believe in justice. We want the things to be put right. And to do that, we need to start in ourselves. We need to look at the evil and the injustice of our own lives, our own hearts. And if something's going to save the world, it's got to be justice. It's got to be justice being accomplished. That's why Jesus came. That's why he needed to be born of a virgin. So what, what I'm asking is that if, if you're a naturalist and, and you still believe in good and evil and that there's something wrong with the world, what I would say is, why not be consistent, at least, with your worldview? If, if the world is just here for no reason and no purpose, then there's no good and evil. The world doesn't need to be changed. It can't be changed. In other words, there is no real hope. The Christmas message is a message of hope, that, the, that God has made the world. Yes, it's gone wrong, but God has taken the responsibility to put it right, and He's done so with His Son. Jesus was born of a virgin so that he could, God could assume a human nature but without that, that fallen sinfulness. So he lived a perfect life, a sinless life. That qualifies him to take on our sin and to, to, to accomplish justice for once and for all, the book of Hebrews says, by the sacrifice of himself. He's the mediator between God and man. So in a sense, the purpose for Christmas is Easter. It's only 33 years between the two. He was born as a man so he could die to make the world right, to give us a chance to be made right with God for all of eternity. Please consider this, and thanks for watching Church for Skeptics.